Good morning. Welcome to chapel this morning. Um, one quick announcement, as many of you probably know, today is Veterans Day. We'd like to just take a moment, if we do have any either people currently serving or veterans, um, we'd like to recognize you. If anyone's here, if you could stand. Anyone? No current serving. Okay. Well, please do take a moment, if you know of any um, within the community, um, just to recognize them throughout this day. I'd also like to introduce our chapel speaker for this morning. Many of you know Professor Stephanie Flaherty. In addition to teaching in the social work department, she is the co-director of HOPE, which stands for Help and Options for the Prevention of Exploitation. HOPE provides meaningful ways for students to explore the ways in which their faith influences their understanding of and response to human trafficking issues while engaging the campus and community in the specific social justice movement and work. Prior to teaching at ENC, Stephanie spent more than a decade working with perpetrators and survivors of domestic and sexual violence. So we'll be covering some difficult topics today, but we are so welcome to have Professor Flaherty with us. Would you join me in welcoming her this morning? And would you stand with me as we enter into worship? for the um, ways that we can enter together as a community. God, we just give you praise and thanks for this day. Even in the midst of the rain and the dreariness, Lord, we know that you are here amongst us. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, be with us this morning as we enter into worship. We thank you for this um, new chapel team that has been um, working together. And um, Lord, excited for the ways that they will lead us in worship this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In the light, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome. John 1, verse 5. A number of years ago, I was working for a domestic violence victim service agency. And part of my responsibilities included supervising direct care staff, um, advocates, and case managers. And so one day, I get a call from one of my case managers And she says that a new woman came into the shelter uh, the night before, and she had just met with her that morning. And the woman came into the shelter as a result of physical abuse she had experienced. And the case manager just had some questions. There was something different about this person's story and experience, and she was wondering if I would be willing to go over to the shelter and meet with her and and consult on the case. So um, I went over to the shelter, and... That is where I met this client, and today we'll call her Mary. Um, I met Mary for the first time. And so I introduced myself, I explained what my role was, and asked Mary if there was anything she thought that I could do to support her or help her. And Mary had disclosed that uh, the next day she had a medical procedure scheduled, and there was about a two- to three-week recovery time. And so a lot of our conversation during that first meeting was around the logistics of how this was going to happen, how she was going to get to and from the facility, get back to the shelter, those types of things. One of my jobs, um, or one of my roles there, was also to discuss safety planning. So how do we increase the safety and decrease the potential harm from the person who she's saying has abused her, her boyfriend, while she's out of the shelter. But Mary didn't really want to talk about that. Um, That didn't really seem to be a concern to her. So after that meeting, we had worked out all the details, and after that meeting, I too had the feeling that there's just something different about Mary's story and something different about her experience. And at that point in my career, 
I had worked with literally hundreds of survivors of uh, domestic violence at that point in time, and there are typically themes and patterns and experiences that are fairly similar. And there was just something different about that. So the next day comes, Mary has her procedure, she comes back to the program, and um, a day or two pass, I meet with Mary, and I, tend to, I continued to meet with her pretty regularly. And so during our times together, Mary would share some of her experiences of abuse. Um, we would talk about what she went through. We were kind of planning through the future. But this whole time, there was still, there's something missing, something that I just couldn't pick, put my finger on what that difference was. So about two weeks had passed, and I had two appointments in the afternoon that particular day that I canceled. So I thought, I'll just run over to the shelter, see how Mary's doing. So I walked into the shelter, connected with Mary, and we were chatting for a few minutes, and Mary was starting to feel a lot better from her procedure, and so she was telling me how finally she was feeling better. She was finally, you know, starting to feel like herself again, which was about time because, you know, a couple of weeks had passed, and she just needed to get back out there and get back to work because she just, you know, she was down on the amount of money she was bringing in, and her boyfriend would, and she stopped. And in that moment, Mary realized what she was starting to disclose to me. And in that moment... I realized what the difference was in Mary's story. See, all up until this point, I recognized the disconnect in the way that she talked about the abuse that she had experienced, and she had this sense of true and genuine fear and emotional pain. But the disconnect was with how she talked about the boyfriends. She talked about them in a very different way, and that's not necessarily atypical in the context of domestic violence, But there was something different here. And in that moment, I realized Mary's abuse was real. Her physical abuse that she experienced was real. But it wasn't by her boyfriend. The abuse was from the men who rented her. And her boyfriend wasn't just her boyfriend. It was her pimp. I can remember talking to her that day and just this weight coming over me of, what do I do now? I know all the resources for domestic violence, but what exists for folks who are exploited and trafficked? What's out there? How, how do I get her connected to the services that I think that she needs and can benefit from? And there are those moments in your career when you're working with clients, and every client's story is unique and different, but there are just some moments that stay with you. And this was a moment that has stayed with me for all of these years because I can remember Mary looking at me and saying, but there's there's no place, there's no hope for people like me. And the sense of hopelessness in that room at that moment was palpable. Mary did agree to meet with me the next day and talk about service options and what was available. So I had left uh, work that day and spent most of my evening calling every single colleague I knew, every single person I thought might have access to resources, and trying to figure out what is out there. How, where, what do I do for this person? And I was really coming up against a brick wall. There just wasn't a lot out there. What was I going to do? So I prepared myself to go into work the next morning, ready to you know, work with Mary and figure out where we're going to go, but realizing I didn't have a lot of options and resources to give her. And I walked into the shelter, and I was greeted by the staff who informed me Mary was no longer in our program. Mary left the night before. 
I can only assume that Mary went back to her boyfriend, her pimp, and went back to the life that she knew. Because the reality was there wasn't a lot out there. And she probably knew that. But the gift that Mary gave me was now I was aware. Now I knew that there was this tremendous need that was out there. Because, you see, I grew up and I was taught that slavery had ended, that we had emancipation, and that slavery no longer existed. And certainly in today's society, we think it doesn't exist. Or we believe the misnomer that if it does exist, it happens somewhere out there, some other country, and not here, not in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities. But I was wrong. We, collectively, were wrong. Slavery does exist. It happens in every corner of the world. It happens in our own communities, in our own backyards. And, in fact, for many of us, we can even find it in our own homes, in the meals that we're, service, our, the meals that we're eating, in uh, the electronics we're purchasing, in the clothes that we're purchasing and wearing. So what is important is that we understand that as Christians, we are a people of faith committed to seeking social justice and, rest- and restoration. And therefore, we cannot remain silent about human exploitation and human trafficking. We have to respond. We have to act. The ILO, the International Labor Organization, estimates that approximately 14.2 million people are entrapped in forced labor globally. They also estimate that nearly 4.2 to 4.5 million people are entrapped in sexual exploitation at a global level. And again, those are huge numbers. I mean, that's staggering. That's more than 20 million people that are enslaved and exploited. That can seem very overwhelming. Modern-day slavery, which we also call human trafficking, happens all over. It happens here in the U.S. as well. What does that actually mean? The um, Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 gives a, a very clear definition um, with you know, three different elements, an action, a means, a, and a goal. And I'm happy to talk about folks who wanna, with folks who want to learn more about that. But the easiest way that we can describe what trafficking is is that it's taking a human being and making them a commodity. It's taking a human being and turning them into a thing to be bought, sold, and resold. Stripping the person of their humanity. How does that impact us? What does that mean for me as a person and as a Christian? How do I reconcile that this is even happening? And part of the problem is there, there are lots of misconceptions about what trafficking is. You know, we see the movies like Pretty Woman and the Julia Roberts idea of, of that's what prostitution is about. Or we see those scary movies such as Taken where someone's just kidnapped and taken away. And yes, why the Taken movies are kind of those extreme cases that may happen, that's not the typical experience of somebody who's exploited and trafficked. That is not the fantasy. The fantasy is not the reality. One of the most common misconceptions or myths is that it just happens overseas. It doesn't happen here, and and that's just not true. The United States is actually a source, a transit, and a destination for human trafficking. 
And so what does that mean as a source? That means that folks in our own communities are victimized. They are lured into this. They are taken as victims and are forced into labor and sex trafficking. What we do know statistically that most of um, the folks, many of the folks who are exploited sexually, their age of entry into trafficking is usually 12 to 14 years of age. So you're looking at middle school kids. Research indicates that some of the most common places that kids are recruited are in schools, at the mall, at train and bus stations. So this is happening all around us. This isn't just somewhere else. This is stuff that's happening in our own communities. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children um, just last year in 2014 estimated that one in six cases of endangered runaways that was reported to their center, one in six, was most likely a victim of sex trafficking. These are kids. Kids. And 68% of those cases At the time that the child ran away, they were in the custody of social services or in foster care. So our residential homes, our adolescent programs, these are prime areas for folks to recruit these kids. We don't have a lot of really solid numbers on just how many victims we have here in the states, um, mostly because this is a very covert type of enterprise. It's criminal activity, and so a lot of the numbers and cases are under the radar. So we don't have a lot of solid um, research and data to support numbers, but Polaris, which is the national, one of the national organizations here in the country, estimates that in America, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of victims, if we take the adults and the minors, as well as folks that are in labor and sex trafficking. Sex trafficking that's hundreds of thousands of people here in our own country. So that's what it means when we say that the, as the U.S. is a source. We're a transit, which means we can be a stopping ground for trafficking. So coming from another country, using America as a stopping point, and then moving on to another destination. And then we are also a destination. So people are coming here to buy and sell people. So the U.S. is a source, it is a transit, and it is a destination for trafficking. It's not just happening somewhere else. Another significant um, misconception or myth that we have around trafficking is that, well, I don't buy sex, and I am not forcing somebody to work for me, so therefore I am definitely not contributing to human trafficking, right? Unfortunately, that's very wrong. The reality is... The trafficking is impacting all of us, and we are impacting this global economy. Because if we look at just the numbers, the profits on an annual basis from human trafficking globally is $32 billion. Not million, but billion dollars. The Urban Institute did a a study a couple of years ago that looked at eight specific cities in the country and was trying to figure out what was the revenue that was generated from trafficking. And you saw something from as low as $12 million in Denver to $290 million out of Atlanta. That's an awful lot of money coming from the sale of people. When we think about our contribution to trafficking, some of the stuff we don't like to talk about includes pornography. 
the purchase or rental of pornography directly connects to human trafficking. There's a growing body of research identifying the negative impacts on the development of the viewer's brain. There's also um, research that's indicating the negative incomes and the challenges and the dysfunction that is happening in the relationships, the personal relationships of of viewers of pornography, the distortion that takes place just by viewing it. So taking the viewer out of the equation, what happens to the people that are in those um, types of pornographic materials? What we know is that um, statistically, the largest um, search query for pornography is youth. So uh, a research looked at 25% of uh, daily activity in, I think it was Google and Yahoo, was around searching, searching for pornography. And of that, the highest genre that people were looking for was kids and youth. So we're seeing the exploitation happen there. We know that this is especially true for youth, youth as victims, Many of the folks that are um, engaged in those materials and in those acts, it is not truly by choice, but it is through coercion, manipulation, and exploitation. What is also staggering is that some of the research is indicating that the age of first viewing pornography is 12 to 14 years of age. With the easy access of cell phones and Internet, stuff that wasn't as easily accessible is available on a daily basis for our youth. There's a direct connection to slavery. In addition, part of um, what many folks that are arrested and processed for trafficking, sex trafficking, they will share and disclose that part of the way the indoctrination and the grooming process for their victims is forcing them to watch pornography as well. When we think about our direct contribution to human trafficking, we also think about how we're contributing to forced labor. So those starting car washes, the labor can be forced. All-you-can-eat buffets. If you're going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and it's $4, that should be raising some questions. How does that make sense? How is that profitable? What's the supply chain look like and what, does, what are their work practices? Are they providing are they fair trade food? Are they providing a fair wage for their employees? Other things include nail salons, landscaping, Um, agriculture, these are typical areas that forced labor can be found. We also think about our contribution to trafficking in terms of the supply chain. So the items that we are purchasing and we use on a daily basis, how are those created? And it's not enough to say, okay, well, I buy Made in America. The label says Made in America, so I don't have to worry about it. That's not exactly true, because where do those companies get the raw materials. I encourage you after chapel today to head over to the Student Center. We're going to have Students for Hope there. And this is a document you can take a look at. The uh, Bureau of International Labor Affairs for the U.S. produces this uh, almost on an annual basis that looks at a list of goods produced by child labor and forced labor. And it gives some concrete examples of ways that items that we might use on a daily basis are actually being created and mined and harvested from forced labor and child labor. Some of those include gold in our jewelry, the garments that we're wearing, cotton, sugarcane, bananas, rubber, teas and coffees. One way you can 
start to think about how you're contributing is slaveryfootprint.com, Students for Hope. Some of you have participated in that. They've been asking people to complete this online survey where you go to um, slaveryfootprint.com, and that will also be available today. You can go in and you just tell a little bit about yourself. You answer some questions, and it will give you an estimate of how many slaves work for you. That is incredibly sobering. First time I did that, I was shocked. I walked into that survey thinking, hey, I know what's going on. I'm aware of, what, of, of this stuff. And the number that came back was sobering and shocking to me. Maybe I'm not quite as aware as what I thought. So I encourage you to take that survey and think about how we can contribute and how we can learn more about the best practices that are being used, how we can learn more about the organizations we support and the items that we're purchasing and what are their labor practices. Are they offering that fair wage and are they having fair trade products? So we hear all of this and we think, okay, this feels overwhelming. What can I actually do about it? How can I actually make a difference? A couple of things that you can do is certainly learn more. Learn more about the issue. The library has a LibGuide specifically for human trafficking issues. Gives you some great resources, great information that you can look up and read. You can attend some of the HOPE events. Um, Next Tuesday, we've got a documentary we're showing called True Costs that is looking specifically at what's the connection around labor practices and forced labor and how that impacts the fashion industry around this idea of disposable fashion where we've got new outfits constantly coming up. Certainly you can join a discipleship group. Right now Hope has um, a discipleship group going for um, looking at sex trafficking. Next semester we're going to be looking at labor trafficking. And then definitely um, I encourage you to try slaveryfootprint.com. Other things you can do are get involved in the movement. Participate in the anti-trafficking movement. Um, Specifically, I think we have a slide that's going to come up that is talking about the National Trafficking Hotline. And I ask everybody right now, take out your phone. Take out your phone and add this number to it. 1-888-3737-888. Everybody should have this number because trafficking, unfortunately, happens all around us. The best thing we can do is report it. Even if you don't know for 100% that that is trafficking and that this person is exploited, report it. The recovery should be happening through law enforcement. They're the ones who are trained to handle these high-risk cases, so we need to report it. Um, The other piece of that is that there are, on a regular basis, even in our own area, FBI and local law enforcement monitoring various organizations and um, venues, and so we wouldn't want to interfere with any of their um, monitoring and data collection. Other ways you can participate is certainly HOPE. Um, We have talked a little bit about that in the introduction. HOPE stands for Help and Options for the Prevention of Exploitation. And so specifically looking at how do we engage our campus and our community in addressing these issues. And as a service provider myself, I tend to think and assume that other service providers understand these issues. And interestingly enough, Carrie and I just received a call last week from a... um, a service provider who works with children, and um, they're looking for us to create a program specifically to address some of these issues. And one case example they gave us was a case they were working with that involved um, a child under the age of 12, and one of the things they were running into is a service provider was saying, well, you know, I think it's a lifestyle choice. 
Well, let me assure you, a child cannot make a lifestyle choice. That is rape, and that is exploitation. In addition, for those who want to also get very involved in this, after chapel today in the Student Center, Students for Hope will be having an opportunity for you to fill out a postcard to your elected official, um, asking them to start to take some action in creating um, opportunities, looking for funding issues, looking at some policy changes. And so you can certainly head over to the Student Center and learn more And if you'd like to participate in that. But one of the most concrete and tangible things that we can do and we can do on a daily basis is pray. And we need to be in prayer about this. You know, I, I opened with um, John 1, 5 that... Um, We hear the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome. But we also must be reminded that Matthew 18, 20 states, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And our call to be on our knees in prayer about this issue. If we want to see change, we need to be in prayer. And at this time, some of the students from Students for Hope are going to um, head up. And they have prepared some prayers that we are going to do. And today we're going to participate in group prayer, um, where we are praying specifically for six areas within the context of human trafficking. So we're going to specifically be praying for victims and survivors. We're going to be praying for facilitators, those who make it possible for people to be enslaved. We're going to be praying for purchasers, the people who rent other people, the people who are buying products that have been produced and manufactured through slave labor. We're going to be praying for law enforcement and social service providers as they are on the front lines responding to these cases. We're going to be praying for governments and policymakers that they have the wisdom to make the correct policies and policies that are supporting victims and survivors. And then lastly, we're going to be praying for the church, praying for us as a church body on how we can most accurately and appropriately respond and that we are truly listening to God's call because each and every single one of us can make a difference. You don't have to be in a social service major to be involved in this issue. Every single major, every single discipline, every single person has an opportunity to play a role in making a difference in human trafficking. And so the students are going to come up and lead us in those prayers. And then Carrie, the co- our co-director for Hope, will come and lead us in a closing time of prayer. But I encourage you, if you are interested in this issue, if you'd like to learn more, please come and talk to us or talk to some of these students because there is an opportunity for each and every one of us to make a difference. And it was certainly for me, as I do this work, I'm thinking about Mary so that I don't have to have another person like Mary saying, there's no hope for me, there are no programs, there's nothing there for people like me. Because as the church, that's what we're called to do, right? We're called to be that love of Christ and to help in times of hopelessness. Pray with me. Father God, today we bring before you the men and the women who are entrapped in the bondage of slavery. We pray for their safety. God, be near to them and their suffering and hear their cries. Liberate them, Father God, from the hands of their oppressors and set them on the path toward restoration and healing. Father God, today we bring before you those who exploit and facilitate the manipulation of others. We not only ask that you bring their actions to light, but that you would heal them 
of, the, of past wounds and hurts. By your grace, may they, may they turn from their actions and be restored to life in you. Father God, today we bring before you those who purchase the exploited. God, help them to turn from their actions in true repentance. God, heal them and help them to learn to fill the voids they feel with your love and truth rather than temporary pleasures of sin and exploitation of your children. Father God, today we bring before you law enforcement, personnel, and service providers. Help them to see the exploited through your eyes. Allow them to look on the exploited with love and bring the grace, healing, and justice needed to mend the broken situations and set the captives free. In Jesus' name. Father God, today we bring before you government officials and policymakers. Help them to develop a true understanding of the complexities of the issues they face. God, strengthen their resolve to lead with moral character and a commitment to justice. Help them to stand decisively against human trafficking. Give them wisdom and discernment and help us as a society to have the moral conviction and political will to see policies changed and laws enacted to protect the exploited and prevent future exploitation. Father God, our words cannot express what our minds can barely comprehend. God, we lift up your people before you today. Awaken our hearts and deepen our commitment to work for a world where every person is free. Help us to be continually convicted and aware of the injustices in the world and the ways in which we contribute to them. Do not let us be complacent, Father God. Let your church be salt and light in the world to bring the injustices to light, to proclaim sight to the blind, and to bring freedom to the captives. Oh God, forgive us for the ways that we have knowingly or unknowingly contributed to acts of injustice, oh God. And though this seems really heavy and the evil seems palpable, God, we know that you are able to do far more than we can ask or imagine, God, and we just pray that you will uh, remind us of who you are, of the ways that you are bringing light into the darkness, God. I pray that we will have our ears open to the ways in which you're calling us, God, and that you'll give us the courage and strength to be able to walk in your path, Lord. We pray for this community, this ENC community, God, that you'll continue to draw us closer together toward one another to support one another, God, that we may be agents of change and justice in, our, in this community, Father, that we may be a light to the Quincy community and the Boston community as well, Lord. And I just pray that you will uh, go with us today, God. Um, you know, we pray. Amen. Uh, go in his grace and his peace.